Well, we're going to come to the time of teaching this morning, and we are coming to the story of Samuel once again. We're continuing in our study of the book of 1 Samuel, and so you can turn to the chapters that we'll be focusing on, particularly today, chapters 6 and 7. But I will be taking us uh, back a little bit to review some of what we've already learned in prior chapters that really lead into where the story is today. If you haven't been with us for those sermons, you can simply take a look at uh, 1 Samuel 4 and 5 and find out uh, a little bit more about that probably pretty quickly. Or you can always find those messages online and watch them and review them. Read these chapters in the Bible yourself perhaps this week. In any case, it will be sufficient for you to hear what I have to share today and you'll be able to place yourself in the, uh, in the flow of the story, I trust. The most important thing is to reckon with the reality that God wants to speak something to you and I today. Something meaningful to you and I today. So let's pray that we would be open to hear what the Lord has to say to us through the word of the scriptures. Father, we thank you that you are ever present and always ready to speak to your servant who is listening. And as Samuel spoke millennia ago, so we also say to you today, Lord, speak for your servants are listening. We ask, Lord, that you would open our ears, open our minds and open our hearts to receive that exponentially fruitful, that multiplying and powerful, that correcting and edifying word of your will for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Cows and carts. Can such a story really have something to say to us? When we get into reading in the book of 1 Samuel today, you're going to hear some strange things. People who make golden idols out of tumors and rats. What kind of strange story is this? And how could it possibly be applicable to a modern life today? Well, trust me, when it's in the word of God, it has application for you and I. But there's not only the, the essence of what is in the text, but also the understanding of the context in which it was originally given. And so today I'm going to endeavor to share with you some of the details about this historical event in a period of time when the Ark of God, that place where the covenant of God's declaration to his people that included those tablets, the Ten Commandments, so familiar to us, uh, even for people who haven't read the Bible or uh, crossed the threshold of a church, they've probably at least been familiarized with the Ten Commandments. In the ancient days, those tablets were contained in the Ark of the Lord, uh, a beautiful cabinet made according to the specifications of God. As I mentioned last week, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you've seen an idea of what it might have looked like. That wasn't the real one, of course. Um, but at that time, there were the cherubim angels whose wings spread over the top of that, of that ark, that cabinet containing God's word and God's covenant to connect with his people and to provide and protect them. And that place of the cherubim was said to be the seat, the throne of God. In other words, the glory of his presence was dwelling among his people, but his people turned away from him. And so the people around them who worshipped other gods and who were at odds with them stole the ark. And the ark departed, and so, it would seem, did the glory of God. That's what we saw when we were looking at 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5 last week. It was a series of events that God himself had predicted to the people. He had warned them about even in the preceding chapters. Chapter 2 and 3 both make mention of this coming to pass. 
And so the Israelites had been defeated by this people group of the Philistines. Remember that the Philistines had five strongholds, five major cities that were along the coastal plain of, of ancient Israel. And so the Israelites had had to retreat from land that God had told them would belong to them. They had retreated into the more uh, hill country and mountainous regions. And on the plain, there were skirmishes and battles as these two people groups tried to define who was really dominant in the land. It's a kind of skirmish that in its own way continues even to this day, not with the same names, but with very much the same attitudes. And so in the course of time, there were battles. And the people of Israel assumed, as you and I saw from the days of the judges, and even perhaps more so from the days of Joshua, that what God had said was, if you will be faithful to me, you will see my faithfulness um, on your behalf. You'll see my victory. I'll fight your battles for you. But what the people discovered was they lost the battle to the Philistines because they had really lost their devotion to the Lord. Tens of thousands of Israelite warriors were struck down, and the wicked priests, the sons of the former high priest Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, had died, both of them. Though relatively young men, they had died in battle on the same day, just as God had prophesied. In fact, the wife of one of them was giving birth that day, probably a labor that was slightly before its time due to her stress, and sadly, the child, and she died. And as she was dying and had learned that her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, her husband had died and the ark had been stolen, she said, the glory of God has departed. It was a sentiment that the people of Israel in general surely felt. But one of the things that you and I discovered as we looked deeply at the text last week was that the failures of the people and the judgment of the Lord on the idolatry in Israel and then subsequently his judgment on the idolatry of the Philistines was really of a, of a peace. It all indicated that all of these people in their own way had turned against God, had gone their own way, were doing what seemed right to them. It wasn't so much that God was bringing a punishment to bear on people uh, mercurially and unpredictably, but rather that people had so turned away from God and gone so wayward in their own ways that they had walked out of the blessing and into the place of plague. There are times when you and I might feel that God has failed or abandoned us. But no matter what we're feeling, the reality of who God is, is that he hasn't abandoned us. Right, even as we were hearing this morning once again in our time of worship, God is good all the time. And so if we feel that something is going wrong, there may be real wrongs in our lives to be rectified, but you can rest assured that it does not entail God being faithless. He is faithful, he is available, and he is willing to help those who are willing to wait on him in real worship, willing to repent of their wayward ways and to come back to his, to consider how their own behavior may be contributing to their problems, and also to realize that the glory of God's graciousness is often most available to us or maybe most miraculous to us in those times when we need it the most, when crisis is the greatest, when we're facing the greatest challenges. Now, that was a, a, a simple summary of what we looked at last week. So where are we now in the story? 
The ark remains among the Philistines, but you'll remember that we already saw how in the, uh, in the land of the Philistines, the presence of the Lord that was symbolized by the ark was beginning to bring judgment on their idolatry. Remember their idol Dagon was dropped to the ground overnight when they brought the ark into their temple, and that idol was not only bowing before the ark, but when they raised it up again the next day, he fell again and broke into pieces. Not only that, but as I mentioned, plague broke out. In fact, they began to shuffle the ark from one Philistine city to another because each one found that when they held this ark, God's judgment fell upon them. The heavy hand of the Lord came upon them because their wickedness was known to God. And so there are trials among the Philistines that ultimately forced them to give back the glory that they stole. They were so proud of what they had grabbed hold of, but they didn't realize that when they were grabbing hold of the ark, God was grabbing hold of them, and they couldn't handle that. And so they determined to return the ark. Considering all that they've gone through, they want to make sure that they give it back right. In fact, believe it or not, Sister Magoo's words bear application here once again, they determined that in order to give back the ark, they can't just give it back. They need to provide an offering as well. So we'll see something about offering and about what the Lord is really looking for in that section of the scripture. Once the ark comes back to the people of Israel, the people of Israel have a test and trial also until they arrive at the appointed time, until they come really and truly repentant before the Lord. And Samuel calls them to do that very thing which I've titled today's message with. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Will you say that? Return to the Lord with all your heart. Turn to the person next to you and say, Return to the Lord with all your heart. Now we've all said it and we've all heard it. I hope you did it at home too. Because it's in that that God's victory is released in the land. The Philistines are routed. You know what that means? They're beaten. They're defeated. A battle occurs again, but this time the Philistines are on the run. This time it's their army that is decimated by the glory of God who provides an answer to the appeal of his people who were saying, help us, Lord, and how long, Lord? He delivers them. And in the concluding portion of today's study, we'll see how the route of the judge, the route of Samuel through the nation, kind of summarizes for us an attitude, a disposition of heart that is really at the center of what today's message is about. It's the point of application for you and I. Where is the altar in your life? Where is God enthroned in your life? We'll look at that as we look at the text. So, again, as I mentioned, we're sort of halfway through the episode in which the Philistines are holding the ark. They now have it held at the... Uh, um, uh, excuse me, last week we looked at how they had it held in Ashdod and Ekron. And in each of those cities, there's a plague that breaks out. We are told that the people develop tumors. We are told that, well, ultimately we are told that they make uh, golden idols of rats. Now, why did they do this? Apparently there's some kind of infestation of rats in the city. In fact, some have suggested that these two things seem to go together. We know that the bubonic plague, which has uh, ravaged the world at various times, but is probably most familiar to most of us because of its extraordinary death toll in medieval Europe, was a, uh, an infectious disease 
that was carried by the fleas on rats. It sounds really unappealing, doesn't it? It's even worse to actually develop the disease. And so where rats would infest a city, those fleas would be communicated from the rats to the people, and the fleas carry the disease that produces these buboes, which are kind of uh, tumorous growths that develop along with uh, a, a horrific fever and frequently lead to um, extraordinary death in the populace. Perhaps that was what was going on. At the very least, what we know is lots of people are developing tumors, seeing rats, and dying. Bad stuff. And so the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory in these various cities for seven months now. Perhaps there is some significance in that number. You'll remember that the Hebrew number seven is associated with the divinity of God. He created the world in seven days. There's a kind of perfection and totality in the number seven. And here we may see that God has brought the people, this rebellious Philistine people, who are engaged in all kinds of idolatry, to a place where they are really ready to reckon with the, uh, the waywardness of their sin, or at the very least, they are ready to give back what they've stolen. So they call their Philistine priests, their soothsayers and diviners, and they say, what are we going to do with this ark of, the, of this I am God, Yahweh is the Hebrew way of saying it, this God of the, of the Israelites? Tell us how we should send it back. They're referring to the priests and the diviners because they recognize there's something supernatural. There's a divine spiritual power at work relative to this object. And so we don't know how to get rid of it. We thought that we were gaining something, but we're losing. And so the, the priests of the Philistine people say, well, don't just send it back. If you're going to give back the ark, you also, by all means, must give a guilt offering. You must repent. Not only are you going to make restitution, but you're going to pay damages so that you don't incur additional damages and death. Then you will be healed and there will be atonement for you, is the way that the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter interprets that phrase. Then, won't God lift his hand from you? In other words, they're saying, if you don't do anything to acknowledge the sovereignty of this God, you're going to continue to be under the weight of his judgment, even if you give the ark back. But if you give the ark back and you give something more, and you show that we were in the wrong and you are right, then God's favor will, will arrive to you. So the Philistines said, well, what kind of offering should we give? What, what, what's the restitution that we have to pay? What damages? And their diviners say, five gold tumors and five gold rats. Now, I don't think you hear that in a courtroom today, probably. Imagine that lawsuit. We, the jury, find the, uh, for, the, uh, for the defendant, and we feel that the plaintiff should pay five gold rats and five gold tumors. What's going on here? Well, first of all, the fact that they are made out of gold means they're valuable. So there's a monetary um, value to this. That probably was obvious to everyone. But gold also has a reflection of divinity in the ancient world. It was something natural that sparkled, that glittered, that had durability and special properties. And of course, then as now, in fact, even more so then, was exceedingly rare and difficult to obtain. And so there is something of an acknowledgement of the sovereignty and divinity of this God of Israel, who is not even their God. But they're saying, we are going to give him our wealth, or at least of our wealth. And they are doing it in a symbolic way. The fact that there are five cities and five municipal leaders of those cities. Sometimes city leaders in those days were even called kings. 
or you could think of them as judges, but they're, they're, the leaders of each city are being represented symbolically. In the ancient world, images, and that's the term that's used here, the Hebrew word is salem. It's the same word that God uses in his word when it is said that he made man and woman in his image. He made us in his salem. And idols have the same term because they are images of a God. Now remember that in the Ten Commandments, those tablets that God had in the ark, he said, you'll have no other God before me and you won't make any salem of me. You won't make any graven images of me. Why? Because in the ancient world, the idea was if you could make an image of a God or of anything, you could control that. It's almost sort of like a voodoo doll idea that if you have this small a personification of a thing, and it's the right image, and it's got the right name, then it's sort of like a key. Then you have the right to compel that thing to do what you want, sort of like the genie in the bottle, right? And part of why God said you will not do that is because he was communicating to his people then, and he's communicating to us today. I am your God, and I am for you and not against you, but you will not control me. You are to serve me. And you, in fact, are in my image. Think about that. That's a powerful statement from God to say that we are made in his image. Because what that's really saying is that his power wants to operate in us, but according to his will, not to ours. And so as we submit ourselves to God, we can be a representation of God to the world, not according to our own will, but collectively as his people, we can be like a mirror that shines the grace and face of God into the world, that lets people see who God is. Perhaps this is part of what Jesus means when he says, you are the light of the world. And so the idea of the Philistines is in some way connected to a spiritual reality, but it's been perverted by their idolatrous nature and thinking. They suppose that by making these idols of rats and tumors out of gold and giving them to God, what they are doing is essentially offloading from themselves this kind of curse. And so their notion of trying to honor God is still embedded in this curiously deluded idolatrous disposition. What am I trying to say there? Even in trying to appease God, they don't understand who he is. And because they don't understand who he is, they don't understand themselves. But at least they are offering something valuable to God. You know, sometimes it's the people who don't know the Lord or don't know him well and haven't experienced anything of him but come to a point of crisis and are finally willing to say, well, what can I do to get right with God? And even if what they do may be misinformed or have the wrong idea, there is something of value in recognizing that at least there's the spark of something right in the heart that says this is a real God and I really have to be held to account with him. So by giving these, these tumors and, and rats and gold, they're saying we recognize that these things aren't coincidence. We recognize that these were your punishment on us and now we're paying the penalty of that punishment to you. But you can be sure that part of them is also thinking maybe if we do this just right, we can control what God does next. And that, of course, is still wrong. Notice that 
even the Philistine soothsayers and religious leaders have some idea that it is in the heart that God is mostly looking. And here again, we see in the story, as I mentioned last week, that there are parallels being drawn to the events of the Exodus in the days of Israel in Egypt. The, the Philistine priests say, why do you harden your hearts to God as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, the Egyptians, didn't they send the Israelites out so that they could be on their way, so they could be free? And so the Philistines are saying, send out the ark in the same way and at least get out with your life. So they advised the people to engage in a sort of supernatural test. Even at this point, they're not certain. We think that this is a curse from this God of Israel. We think if we give these golden idols and we give the ark back, it'll work. But how do we know for sure? And maybe we're opening ourselves up to defeat or to derision and embarrassment in the land. And so the Philistine priests say, here's a test. And in this way, you can confirm whether God is really the source of your trials and problems and also whether he's going to be satisfied with this offering that you're making. What they said was, take the gold tumors and the rats, put them into a little crate, put the ark all on a cart, and then find two milk cows who have just calved. In other words, they've had newborn uh, little baby cows, calves. And take away the calves, pen them up so that the milk cows uh, don't see them, and then have those milk cows, who are not typically beasts of burden, by the way, be uh, latched, harnessed to this cart. Now, if they take the cart to the city, to the uh, place of Israel, then you'll know that's God, because that is a virtually miraculous uh, occurrence. The natural inclination of the milk cows would be, first of all, to find their calves. In fact, they have a sort of a physical priority in doing that. They are burdened with milk. They want to nurse and they also have the maternal instinct of the animal that is looking for their child. So in all likelihood, these cows who are not really uh, typically uh, going to be capable of, of uh, taking an, uh, a cart in some particular direction anyway, that's not what they're bred and raised for, they're going to be looking for their calves. So if they go down the road without any human driver, without any human impetus, and they take that cart all the way to Israel, it must be God. So this is the test that the Philistines do, and indeed... It is what happens. They did as they were directed, and the cows went straight upward toward Beth Shemesh, which is this uh, border city in southwest Judah, the southern portion of Israel. There's something about the directness of these cows that, believe it or not, is supposed to direct you and I. These, forgive me if you're a fan of cows, but let me put it in bluntest terms. These stupid animals who have a natural drive to do something else are following the compelling will of God. The Holy Spirit is miraculously at work. In fact, it says that they're lowing and mooing as they go. You know, almost as if they don't know what they're doing, but they have to follow this God. And in their directness and the rapidity of it, the, the, the speed of it, there's a, a statement, I think, from the Lord to us, which is, if these cows can follow my will, if these cows in their mooing can sing my praise, how much more so you who are made in my image? So, don't be a dumb cow, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> or do, and follow the Lord. The rulers of the Philistines are sort of following at a distance. They're keeping their safe distance, but they observe them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh, and they see that, indeed, God has demonstrated 
that this was his will, so he must be a truly empowered God. The people of Beth Shemesh are out harvesting wheat in the fields when this happens. They look up, they see the ark. What a miracle it is to them. This is not a battle that they had to fight. They didn't even go out to try and get it. They were so, um, so certain that the glory of God had left. They were so intimidated by the military might of the Philistines. They were so complacent in their defeat that they weren't even looking apparently for the ark to come back. And here it is, two cows, a cart, and the ark, and a bunch of gold. Sure, it's tumors and rats, but it's gold. And it's on the horizon. And who's leading it but the Lord? So they rejoice. The cart comes to a field, and the cows stop there beside a large rock. The people chop up the wood of the cart. They sacrifice the cows. In other words, everything that has been returned or given to Israel becomes part of this sacrifice or honoring of God. Of course, the ark itself is taken into possession, but the cart that it rode on is sacrificed because it would now be too holy to be used for anything else. And the cows that, that uh, led it also sacrificed. In this burnt offering to the Lord, the people are endeavoring to worship God. They place the gold models on the large rock as a kind of reminder, a memorial, that this actually belongs to God. This wealth and this recognition of his might and his power. The five rulers of the Philistine cities see this and they go back to Ekron. The deal is done. The transaction has been accepted. And the large rock, we are told in the text, is witness to this day in that field. In other words, by the time of this writing, which would be in ancient times, the rock is still there, and probably the gold is still there as a lasting memorial to what God has done. A reminder that God is faithful, even when we're faithless, and God is able no matter how long the odds. But problems come. God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Here's an interesting little oddity in the text. In the Hebrew, it says, putting 70, 50,000 of them to death. Now, there's not 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh at that time. It's virtually an impossibility. So what is likely is that what is being described here is first 70 people in Beth Shemesh die, probably of this similar kind of plague, and then it seems to spread through the land even to the point of some 50,000 people dying throughout the nation. And so the people of Israel are experiencing the similar kind of judgment as did the people of the Philistines. What's going on here? Isn't God satisfied? Didn't the Philistines pay off their debt? And aren't the Israelites the people of God? And so these people mourn because the heavy hand of the Lord, the blow of the Lord is now dealing with them. And they react in exactly the way that the Philistines did. Send the ark somewhere else. How can we possibly have this holy presence of God in our city? Sometimes when God comes close, he starts doing things that you and I don't like. Sometimes when we open ourselves to the Lord and we say, I'm worshiping the Lord and I'm ready for what you want to do, God, the next thing that he does can look like a death to us. Imagine how the apostles and the disciples felt when Jesus was entering Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday and everybody in the city was praising his name and they figured, now is going to be the victory. But by the end of that week, by Friday, 
He's dying on the cross. And people mourned. And maybe people begin to think, I don't want anything to do with this God. If this is the way God behaves, get him away from me and get me away from him. But there's something deeper to be realized. And the text will make it clearer to us as we proceed. So the people send messengers to another city in Israel, kiriath Jerem, and they say, the ark is back, the Philistines returned it, come and take it. They're presenting it like, we want to share this, this boon with you, but when the men of kiriath Jerem come and, and, and take up the ark of the Lord, there is not a change in the attitude of Israel for another 20 years. The Hebrew scholar Robert Alter, who I mentioned a few moments ago, writes about this passage. God doesn't speak in this narrative, in this chapter. You don't hear his voice in the text. He doesn't have a direct quote. But he's manifesting his power all through it. And he's manifesting that power, not only the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, but also over his own people, the Israelites, in like manner. And it's a supernatural power manifest in the natural realm. The initial joy that the Israelites feel, those in Beth Shemesh, when they see the ark returned, is what prompts their worship. They make sacrifice. They worship the Lord according to the standards and rituals that are familiar to them. But when they suffer a fate that looks like the exact same kind of plague fate, apparently, that the Philistines had, they adopt the same response as the Philistines. In other words, what we're seeing in this story over and over again is Israel and the Philistines behave more alike than different. As people who are following Jesus today, we have to consider, can anyone tell us apart from the people who aren't following Jesus? Do our lives look so much like the lives of non-believers that from God's perspective, the results are the same? And if we think that by appropriating just the superficial outward aspects of worship, that that somehow changes the equation, this passage of scripture should make clear to us that it isn't just the external aspects of worship, but most primarily the internal disposition of the heart that not only is critical to what God thinks, but is actually decisive for what happens in our world, for what happens in our lives. It's not that the worship is wrong, it's that it isn't rooted in their hearts. To such a degree that even though they've worshiped God, they want to get rid of his presence because that's what the ark represents to them. They try and shuttle it to another town in Israel to protect themselves. And thereby you can see that their heart is not totally given over to God. So the ark remains in kiriath Jerem for 20 years. That is a long time. But over that time, apparently the Lord is working on their hearts. And Samuel is entering into his period of primary leadership in that time. Presumably the ministry of Samuel and the word of the Lord that would come through him to the people and his teaching and admonition to them were also central in bringing the people back to the Lord. 
to the point where Samuel says to them, as a sort of national address, if you are really returning to the Lord, see, here he's going to make it clear to them. Remember how the Philistines said, well, how do we give this back in a way that satisfies? Samuel, now as the prophet and priest to the people of Israel from God, is going to say to them, here's how to really give your heart to the Lord. If you really do love him, if you really are following him, then follow him with all your heart. And how do you do that? Get rid of the other things that you are worshiping. Get rid of the idols. Oh, it turns out that they have Ashtoreths and Baals. In other words, they have idols to these other Canaanite pagan gods. Why? Well, we looked at it when we studied the book of Judges. These pagan idols were associated with things that the people wanted, with material wealth, with longevity, protection from drought, harvest, fertility. If you couldn't have a child, there was a, a blessing and, a, and an offering you could make to Ashtoreth who could help you with that, according to the pagan mindset. And these people figured, well, we may as well try it. It might work. It's something they want. If God isn't under my control, maybe I can have a little idol of Baal or Ashtoreth who will be. The problem was that the idols that they thought they controlled end up controlling them. And so Samuel says, if you really want to be free in the Lord, you have to get free from the things that are binding you, that are a part of your life that are taking his place. I've called this section the Israelites' appointment. You know, their temple, their tabernacle, even in the wilderness, was known as the Tent of Moed in Hebrew the appointed meeting place, the tent of meeting, a place and a time. Remember that in ancient Israel and even in Judaism today, it wasn't just the locus of meeting with God, the place, but also the time. You know, one of the Ten Commandments is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it isn't so much which day of the week that is, but when is your appointment with God? Now, I'm preaching to the choir here because you're here on a day that you've dedicated to the Lord. You've given this time to the Lord. And I want you to know there's blessing in that. But not if we're doing it in order to grab the blessing from God, but because we want our hearts to be unified with him. That's the appointment that God has with us. And I want to ask this. What's your appointment with God every day? Where is the space? When is the time? What is the way in which every day you get close to Jesus and listen for his voice and ask for his guidance? It should involve the scriptures because this is the clearest and most objectively reliable way to hear from him. It should involve gathering like this as we do. It should involve also worship, not just of the manner in which we share together in this room on Sundays, but every day in our hearts, meditating on the Lord, expect to hear from him, desire to meet with him, and make place for it. You probably have many things on your calendar. What about putting a time there for God? That's not to say that you can't talk to him every time and all the time, but it may be a, a risk to say, well, I talk to God all through the day and never have a time that's given specifically to him. Because it's easy to think that you're talking with the Lord all the day in little prayers. And it's a wonderful habit to be in, but there needs to be a place where he comes first every day. A reminder that it isn't the other things, your job, what's in your bank account, your strength, your beauty, your charm, your charisma, your resume, your experience. 
but it's the Lord that comes first in your life. And even things that are very valuable and highly important, like your marriage or your children, if those things come first in your heart before the Lord, you are idolizing something that God gave you and God wants to work in, but you're making it into a space in which he's diminished. I'm not saying don't love your children. I'm not saying don't love your spouse. But remember, Jesus said that you needed to love God first. And that involves actually the right order of things to improve your marriage or your relationship with your children. Somebody out there says, well, I'm neither married nor have children. There are critical relationships in your life, maybe with parents, maybe with a sibling, maybe with very close friends, maybe it's a roommate. Whatever those key relationships are, realize that unless God is over them and comes first, they are unlikely to flourish, and they will probably be places of problems. But if God comes first, even when there are problems, God's glory and blessing will be at work in those relationships because God's presence will be with you in your heart. So Samuel says, get rid of those idols, commit yourself to the Lord, serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of these enemies. And the Israelites follow. They get rid of the idols and they determine to serve the Lord only. After 20 years, what a waste of time. They could have done that on day one. On the other hand, I'm glad that they did it after 20 years. And so for you, Maybe some of us are thinking, wow, I've wasted a lot of time. Maybe the light is dawning on you today that makes you realize all these issues that I think are so problematic, all these plagues and curses that seem to have accrued in my life, they could all be turned around today if I would return to the Lord with all my heart. But somewhere the enemy is saying, well, you didn't do it last year, and you didn't do it five years ago, and you tried to do it ten years ago, and it didn't work, and what a waste, and what a loser. Silence him. And let the Lord speak to you and say, today is the day. The past is past, but today is the day. Today, return to the Lord with all your heart and experience his victory, his freedom, his blessing, because God wants to bless you and free you and prosper you. Amen. He wants to strengthen you. So let him. Now, when the Philistines hear about what's happened, which is that Samuel has gathered the entire nation at a place called Mizpah, which means watchtower. They are afraid that the nation that has now gotten its ark back for 20 years is really going to finally deal them the decisive blow and attack. And then when the Israelites hear that the Philistines are bringing their troops together because they think that the Israelites are going to attack them, then the Israelites are afraid of the Philistines. And they say to Samuel, don't stop interceding for us. Be our mediator with God. Cry out to the Lord for us so that he will rescue us. This is a genuine cry of the heart, though. This is the way you and I can speak to the Lord Jesus. Lord, I've got, I've got enemies all around me. I've got problems before me. I've got situations I don't know how to deal with. Jesus, help me. And please, don't stop helping me. And please, don't stop guiding me. And you know what? He won't. He will respond to that call. He will answer you when you call upon him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Samuel does the same thing. He makes an offering. But the difference is the offering is a reflection of the reality of what is already in his heart and now in that of the Israelites. He sacrifices a young lamb as a burnt offering. And they, he cries out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. And the Lord answered him. He does this 
at a place uh, whose very name means place of the Lamb. The manner of worship that Samuel initiated among the people is similar to the sacrifices they made 20 years earlier. It was also a burnt offering. But what's changed? The heart of the people. The exclusivity of their focus on God. The sincerity of their commitment to the Lord. The, the, the singularity of that commitment. So Samuel is in the act of making this burnt sacrifice and the Philistines are now drawing near to engage Israel in battle. It's a sort of restaging of where this whole uh, extended series of history began, which was a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites in which the Israelites lost and then lost again big time. Now what's going to happen? The tide has turned. This day, the Lord thunders with loud thunder against the Philistines. In fact, there is probably a literal uh, um, event being described here. There's thunder and lightning in the sky as the battle rages, and there's a panic on the part of the, uh, of the Philistines who are then routed, defeated, sent fleeing, and destroyed by the army of Israel. The, the Israelite men rush out and they pursue the Philistines to this place that I've described, Bet-Kar, place of the Lamb. In other words, their victory goes all the way out to this place called the place of the Lamb. And that is where then Samuel takes a stone and sets it up in the intermediate space and says, this is Ebenezer, which we talked about last week, the stone of help because God has helped us this far. God has helped us this far and if we trust in the Lord, the implication is God will keep on defending us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Now something interesting is said here. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. So it almost sounds like There's this victory, and then Samuel is the victorious judge over the Philistines for his whole life. But we know that the Philistines continue to be opponents to Israel. In fact, you know the story of David and Goliath. Goliath is of the Philistines. And so there's ongoing battle that happens. But what I think is being referred to here is Samuel, whose heart was given over to the Lord and whose ministry was about turning other people's hearts to the Lord, had a ministry in which... Throughout his days, there was not the kind of victory for the Philistines that they had had before. The Lord stood as a defender of Israel throughout the days of Samuel's leadership. With hearts that were renewed in their focus and their faith on the Lord, the Israelites experience a renewed victory as well. It's the kind of victory that they used to have in days of old, and it happens in the place of the Lamb. The victory in the place of the Lamb is the cross. It's the saving work of the Lord in our lives. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist is quoted as saying in John 1, 29. When we place ourselves in the camp of Jesus, when we come to him with all our heart and turn from any other help and put our entire hope in him, he is our victory. And the victory that he obtained on the cross is secured in your life and mine in ways that can be applied day by day in every way, in every relationship. Now we get this concluding passage, and it's the conclusion of my message as well for today, the route of the Judge Samuel. He has a lifestyle in which he goes around the country from town to town, continually preaching, teaching. It's a kind of lifestyle that in in its way is similar to what Jesus will do millennia later, which is, to go around the country calling people to repent 
and return to the Lord. You know that in the book of Matthew, when Jesus' ministry is described, when he first begins his earthly ministry as an adult, that's what we are told his message is. That is the summation of the gospel that Jesus preaches. He began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, God's here. The ark is here. The presence of God is here right now with you. Repent, which means return to the Lord with all your heart. Renounce the other things that you try to use to gain what you want or to control your life or to make your relationships the way you want them to be and instead give yourself entirely to God and experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. There's peace in the land in these days, even with other enemies like the Amorites. And Samuel continues on this circuit, going from place to place to place. But he always comes back to his home place of Ramah, where he holds court. Apparently, he not only teaches, but probably decides disputes and, and handles legal cases that people bring to him there. But most importantly, he builds an altar there to the Lord. In other words, Samuel's life is about turning people to God, and his life is centered and rooted in God himself and in giving himself to God, everything of himself, his wealth, his intellect, his investment of emotional energy, his time. He loves the Lord with all his heart. Now, the fidelity of the people of Israel in this moment, which is at a high water mark, is going to ebb. We've seen it before. It waxes and wanes. And you know, as I like to point out, we can relate to this. There's times where our commitment to God may feel really white hot and our passion for him may be burning bright. And there's times where we go through dry seasons. There's times where we feel like I don't know where God is and I don't know that I care anymore. There's times where we may feel like I want to run and hide just like Adam and Eve did even back in the garden. But the Lord's faithfulness doesn't waver. The Lord's dedication remains the same. In this summarizing passage, though, we see what a difference it makes when one person says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When one person says, I'm going to share this word with as many people as I can, but whether they receive it or not, whether they believe it or not, this is the center of my life. This is the meaning of my worship. This is my God. And my life revolves around him. I'm going to serve him with all my heart. What's the lesson for you and I today? People around you are living in all kinds of confusion, but you don't have to, and you shouldn't. It doesn't mean that you don't care about them. In fact, the best way that you can show care for others and shine a light that would break down confusion and bring forth revelation is by centering yourself on the Lord. So no matter what people are doing around you, the primary question that you and I have to ask ourselves is, who do I serve? Are there any idols that are creeping into the priority of my life? Is there anyone or anything that is coming before God in my heart? And if so, it is always the right time to return to the Lord with all your heart. The promise is to experience the fullness of his victory, to experience the fullness of his spirit, to experience the fullness of his grace. Today is a day to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Lord, we put our hearts on you today. We set our hearts on you today. We ask, Lord, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Forgive us of our wayward ways. Remove from us those things which become idolatrous, Lord. Anywhere where something has become habitual, addictive, anywhere where we are following instinctively but not according to the guidance of your spirit, anywhere where there is something righteous but we have elevated it above you and in doing so it has become unrighteous, we ask that you cleanse us of those things, that you deliver us of those things, that you even illuminate those things for us so that we can renounce them, so that we can correct them, so that we can reorder our lives around you. That's what we ask today, Lord. And for the person who may be feeling discouraged, For the person who may feel that they are under the weight of the heavy judgment of your hand, I pray that your grace would reach them today as well, Lord. The sense of forgiveness that is authentically of you, that the sacrifice of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus on the cross, washes away every sin, that your love covers the multitude of our sin, that your righteousness is enough and more than enough to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Make us whole, Lord. Show us, Lord, how to follow you, how to share you, how to serve you with all of our hearts. For anyone who has never given their heart to to you, Lord Jesus, before, I pray that right now they join with me in this prayer. Just repeat this, would you? Even if it's something you've prayed many times before, repeat it with me as an affirmation of your dedication. Lord Jesus Christ, I give you my heart. I give you my life, my whole life. I realize that as you come close to me and I come closer to you, there may be things in my life that you put to death, that you burn away, that you uproot, that you cut off. I say yes, do whatever you will to make me fully yours. I confess and repent of my sins. I confess and commit to follow you. I trust you, my Savior. Amen.